When you think of God, what is the first word that comes to your mind? Scripture is filled with many ways of talking about God. There, these ways or these characteristics are sometimes called the attributes of God. So what is the first attribute that comes to your mind when you think about God? Maybe you think about the love of God. And as you look through Scripture, there's plenty of evidence, right, that God is loving. 1 John 4, 8 says it pretty plainly, quote, God is what? Love. Maybe you think of His power, how God has just unbelievable power to do things that only God can do. And you certainly see that as you open your Bible. The very first verse declares, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, if the love of God or the power of God was not the first attribute that came to your mind, maybe other things came to your mind like His goodness or His omniscience. All of those different attributes are, and guesses, are correct because they certainly describe God. But one attribute of God appears more in the Old Testament than all of the other attributes put together. What is that? Well, you might have guessed by the songs that we've been singing here this morning, but the attribute is that God is holy. Every Christian at rock bottom should want to know God better, right? And if you're going to get to know God better, you need to know that God is holy. What that means, and then what that means for our life. Today we come to a passage that is probably the classic definitive text about the holiness of God. It's just utterly remarkable, this passage. And this passage is also pivotal in understanding the book of Isaiah, which we're currently studying. As we covered last week in chapters 1 to 5, the nation of Judah was filled with sin. Consequently, Judah faced divine judgment. You say, well, what, what kind of judgment was it looking at? Well, as we said last week, when God orchestrated the covenant with Israel, part of that covenant was if they rebelled toward Him, that they would face consequences. And the end game, the last consequence, would be exile, where God would send a nation to come against the nation of Judah and would devastate them and then exile the people. And so that was the last step. They had not reached that last step, but they were on the doorstep. And they would face that in the future. So those early chapters that we talked about last week kind of set the stage about the enormity of the task that Isaiah is about to face as a prophet for the Lord to speak to this people. As well, we're going to see and kind of getting a, a glimpse here in today's passage about how God not only is going to bring judgment, but He's also going to bring salvation. As He often does, He mixes the two of them in the very same action. So please turn to Isaiah chapter 6. There are four parts to our passage here today. We're going to cover all of Isaiah chapter 6. The first part is the Lord reveals Himself to Isaiah. The Lord reveals Himself to Isaiah. Let me grab a Bible here. ESV. You got one? No. My wife and I have differing translations that leads to marital conflict, but uh, I want to read from the best translation this morning. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 6. Let's read verses 1 to 4. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. At one he called to, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So the Lord reveals himself to Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah of Judah died. Okay, so in contrast, this is you see right off the bat, in contrast to a king who dies and passes away like all kings do, Isaiah sees the throne, the king sitting as he does, eternally so. And to clarify, just so you're, in, you're kind of understanding what was taking place here with this vision, Isaiah was not having a vision of heaven, but God had come to the temple where Isaiah presumably was. So Isaiah didn't go to heaven, but God came down to Isaiah to reveal this vision to him. And as you survey this vision, boy, you're just drawn to this incredible revelation of God, aren't you? I mean, Isaiah says that he sees the Lord, obviously not in his fullness, because as the Bible clearly says repeatedly, no person can see God and live, right? But he saw a manifestation of the Lord, and it says that he saw him sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. He sits on a throne because he rules over all of the universe, and that's why the Bible calls him the, what? The King of Kings. There's no king like him. He rules over all things. He is high and lifted up. He is exalted. And so the throne symbolizes God's great authority and power. But also we see his majesty symbolized by this incredible vision of the train of his robe. And of course, that's the part of the robe that drags behind a a, a king or a royalty figure as they're moving along. Now, we don't really resonate that with that as much in America because we've never had a king, right? But in many parts of the world and in many times throughout history, people have had kings. And a way to symbolize a king's majesty was to have a robe that reflected that, right? And so this robe that Isaiah sees is no ordinary robe, is it? This robe, the train of his robe, fills the entire temple. So this revelation is amazing and awesome. And what's also incredible is the worship of the Lord that Isaiah beholds. He sees and hears these seraphim. You say, well, who are the seraphim? Well, they are angelic beings, but these aren't your run-of-the-mill angels, so to speak, that we find in Scripture. In fact, this is the only time that they do appear in Scripture. It's interesting, the word seraphim literally means burning ones. So to the eye there, they would have just appeared as beings made of fire. Can you imagine just the power of seeing a creature like that? These creatures are very powerful, as we read there. When they speak, the, 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 the whole temple shakes because of the power of their voice. Now, Isaiah doesn't tell us how many of them there are, but he does tell us a description of each of them that they have six wings two to cover their face, two to cover their feet, and two to fly. Now you might say, well, why were they covering their face? Well, they didn't have to worry about COVID-19, so what was going on with these seraphim? Well, I think they were doing this because of the sheer brilliance and radiance of the Lord. Even for them, I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? These 
beings that are made of fire, who are sinless, who are incredibly powerful, even they have to cover their eyes because of the radiance of the Lord. Now the worship that they actually say is found in verse 3, which we read, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. They don't praise God for any other attributes. Certainly, there are those attributes, but they focus solely on the fact that God is what? Holy. And they say it three times. It's the only time in the Old Testament that an attribute is mentioned three times in a row like that. So, the question is, what does holy mean? What does holy mean? Now, traditionally understood there are two aspects to the holiness of God, both involving the idea of separation. First, God is transcendent. He is separate from creation. Second, God is morally pure. He is separate from sin. He can't stand sin or even be tempted. In his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer reflects this understanding. He says, quote, The basic idea which the word holy expresses is that of separation or separateness. When God is declared to be holy, the thought is of all that separates him and sets him apart and makes him different from his creatures, his greatness, and his purity. So in that traditional understanding of holiness, you see this idea of separation, trans, his, his transcendence from creation and his moral purity. However, I've become convinced over just kind of reading and studying the last 10 years or so that that traditional understanding of holiness needs to be modified. Now, I, I think that God is transcendent, and I think He's morally pure, but what I'm talking about is the word itself, holy, I think means something different. Not radically different, but significantly different. In the last generation or so, there's growing evidence that the word in both Hebrew and Greek is better understood to mean devotion or, or consecration. And that comes from studying of the scriptures and how the word was, these words were used outside in extra-biblical writings. So holiness means that God is devoted to himself and his glory and honor. God is devoted to himself and his glory and honor. You see this in Isaiah 6. God does not separate himself from Isaiah but he actually comes to Isaiah in the temple and reveals himself to Isaiah. God is not, he is not completely separate from creation, but it says there that his glory, what? Fills the creation. And he does so because he wants to be rightly honored by the creation. Likewise, the idea of holiness applies to us as his people. Rather than focusing on being separated from sin, which we should be, the focus is rather on our devotion to God so that the result is that we separate from sin. Do you see the difference? It's putting the emphasis on our devotion, and so the result is that we separate from sin. But the consuming focus is a positive thing that we are devoted to God because He has devoted Himself to us. Now, personally, I've always loved that traditional understanding of holiness, but what I always try to say is, what is the Scripture teaching? That is what should guide us. What does Scripture say? What's the most faithful way to understand Scripture, especially about something so important about God, such as His holiness? I'm going to say a little bit more about that at the end of the message, but I don't want to get too far 
off track here. So the first part of this passage is the Lord reveals himself to Isaiah. Second part is Isaiah confesses his sin. So the scene goes to Isaiah and his reaction to this incredible revelation of God. It says there in verse 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now it's interesting. When he has this vision, he doesn't jump for joy, does he? That he saw God. Nor does he sit and just kind of ponder all the details of the vision. It's, it's like this vision creates a crisis for Isaiah. He's like undone. He's unraveled at the seams by this vision of God. It's not something that's comfortable for him. He says he is lost. He says he is undone. You say, why is that? Well, he says he recognizes that he is a sinner and he lives among sinners. And he talks about his lips. Probably he says that because the lips reflect our heart, right? Jesus says that out of the mouth is what defiles us. So our lips just are, are, are you know, a revelation of what our hearts are showing. And so our lips and his lips showed that he was unclean. Now, I don't think this was Isaiah's conversion experience. He was already a believer, but he had no idea how sinful he really was until he had this revelation of God. Tell me if you've ever had something like this happen to you. You're in a room Maybe it's at work, maybe it's at home, going about your business, and you'd say, you know what, I'd like to have a little bit more light in the room. And so you go over and you lift the shade up, or maybe blinds like that, you open them up. And as soon as you do that, something strange happens. The sunlight starts beaming in, and what do you notice? Not just a speck of dust here and there, but you're like, whoa, where on earth did all this dust come from, right? I mean, that's the first thing that's going through your mind. Second thing's probably like, I hope nobody's coming over in the next few minutes here because this place is filthy. Now, let me ask you, when you did that, when, you, when all that light came in, did, it, did all of a sudden the dust just, uh, was it created out of nothing? Did it show up out of nowhere? No. It was there the whole time, wasn't it? But that light showed the dust, it revealed what was already there. And it's the same way with God and our sin. We can live our lives and barely see it. We might, you know, bump against it if we do something really bad or maybe you hurt somebody with something you say or do. But when we, spiritually speaking, open up the shade and let God speak to our hearts and reveal Himself to us, all of a sudden, we start seeing a whole bunch of stuff that was already there. We just weren't taking the time to see it. Maybe it's deep-seated sins that escape our our quick notice. Things like pride and greed that, you know, we just kind of go over in our daily lives. Or maybe it's actually the motives of the things that we do. You know, sometimes we we can be doing the right thing outwardly, serving in the church and praying and this and that. 
But what is the motive for the things that we do? God is interested not only in the outward, but in the inward, isn't he? So let me challenge you to be like Isaiah and come clean before the Lord. Notice a few things that he doesn't do. He doesn't ignore or hide his sin, right? He doesn't blame other people for his sin. He doesn't say the devil made him do it, or he doesn't say it was his parents, or he doesn't say it was his circumstances, or his past, or whatever. He takes ownership of the things in his life. Amen? And also say, notice that he doesn't bargain with God and, and try to offset it by, hey God, um, I'm a prophet. You know, I'm a good speaker. Uh, I know the Bible really well. Uh, so that other stuff kind of counteracts it, right? He doesn't say any of that, does he? He just says, woe is me. Woe is me. He knows that even his good deeds, as he points out later in his book, are but like filthy rags before a holy God. Isaiah simply comes clean. Confesses his sin. C.S. Lewis said, it's when we notice the dirt that God is most present in us. Make sure you do that in your life. So you allow time for the Word of God to come into your heart and the Spirit of God to put things on your heart and mind and you lift the shade, so to speak. Because if you're living your life and there's never any confession, God wants to, deal, to do, do business with us on a regular basis. Not to punish us, but to make us more like Christ who was sinless. Amen? So the Lord, uh, or Isaiah, confesses his sin. The third part that I want you to see is the Lord cleanses Isaiah's sin. Verses 6 and 7, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand, in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So after Isaiah confesses his sin, the Lord responds by sending one of these seraphim to bring a burning coal from the altar to cleanse his lips. Now the seraphim wasn't himself cleansing and forgiving Isaiah. The Lord was the one who had done that, but he was signifying that this has taken place by sending the seraphim to come and put this coal on his mouth. I hope you're encouraged by noticing that Isaiah's cleansing is immediate there's no delay right he doesn't have to keep confessing his sin over and over and over to somehow earn god's favor as soon as he confesses he's cleansed and i think that's what the coal symbolizes it's done the purification it's over with there's a cleansing there and it's complete there's no longer any division with God. The, the seraphim said, look, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So, so Christian, if you're sitting here today and you have honestly confessed something to the Lord and you're still struggling with guilt, well, either A, you haven't really said you're sorry for it, you're still kind of hanging on to it. Maybe you said you're sorry, but you really want to see, keep pursuing it. You really haven't repented of it. Or you just simply, simply need to believe, Right? God forgives you and cleanses you. He doesn't want you to walk around with shame and guilt. Amen? If he cleanses you on the spot, you need to let go and walk in freedom and joy. You might say, well, I did this, God, don't you? No, I forgive you. 
It brings glory and honor to God when we accept His forgiveness, not when we somehow think we have to drag it on and maybe earn it by being a better person. No, you glorify God by receiving by faith what He has done for you. You should walk in the forgiveness knowing that your sins are separated. No longer attached to you. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. So if we, if we confess our sins, God will cleanse immediately and completely. And we need that, don't we? To come clean before God, and He just brings heal, healing and restoration and peace in our lives. You know, so far I've been speaking mostly to believers here, but if, if someone is here or someone watching online who's never trusted Christ, let me encourage you to respond as you're hearing these things, because this message applies to you. Only God can forgive and cleanse you so that you are right with Him and receive eternal life. Scripture declares that we must confess our sins and believe in Christ. Believe that He is God in human flesh who died on the cross to save us for our sins. And He, as Adam said at the beginning, He is the only way of salvation. It's not about being a good person. It's not about adding up our good and hoping that it outweighs the bad. It's about receiving the gift that is offered to you, and you receive it by faith, and you will be cleansed of your sins, past, present, and even future. Fourth part of this passage, the last part, is the commission of Isaiah. Verse 8, it says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. So Isaiah, here's a conversation. <laughs> where the Lord asks, who's going to be his messenger? Now, did you notice in that passage that God speaks in the plural? Did you get that? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? People have wondered, well, why is that in the plural? Some will say, well, God was surrounded by these angels, and so perhaps he was having a conversation with presumably millions or thousands of angels, and this, he has this angelic council. Maybe he was just speaking to the angels that were in his presence. Well, that is possible, but I think there's a fuller meaning here. And in fact, in John chapter 12, the apostle quotes from Isaiah 53, and he quotes from Isaiah 6. And then he says, quote, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah, when, excuse me, in John 12, he is talking about Christ. So in context from John 12, the him that he's talking about is Christ. In other words, Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Christ in his glory. That is who he saw. So when going back to verse 8 here, I believe the Lord was speaking to himself amongst the Trinity. And so the angelic beings, they might have been part of this conversation, but primarily this was the Trinity talking. And maybe that is why the seraphim say three times, holy, 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 ascribing it to each person of the Trinity. So the Lord ponders whom to commission. And here, here comes Isaiah, stepping up with humility and a little bit of enthusiasm. He wants to be God's messenger. What a difference, did you notice, from Isaiah the first time and now? I mean, before he knew his lips were unclean, he knew he was unworthy, but now he's stepping up and saying, I'll be the one, I'll go and serve. 
Isn't it awesome to see how you can go, you know, from transformation to service right away? You don't have to go through some type of probationary period to serve the Lord. God is so good, isn't he? We often have to drag it out on human levels, but God just says, okay, no, right away, if you're genuine in your confession. So what should Isaiah preach as part of this commission? Well, here's the closing of our passage. It says in uh, verse 9, and, I, and he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their hearts heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. I don't think this is what Isaiah hoped for. (laughs) Kind of wonder, was he like, man, I should have read the job description first. (laughs) This was a tough task, wasn't it? In essence, God wants Isaiah to go out and to preach to Judah, realizing that the majority of them are not going to receive the message. His preaching would not be like Jonah. Remember a few months back when we talked about Jonah, where Nineveh rejoiced at this message. He's on the opposite end of the spectrum. Now, it's not the case, if you're wondering, well, maybe Isaiah just wasn't a very clear preacher. No, that wasn't it at all. If you skip ahead to Isaiah chapter 28, 9 to 10, he had critics who criticized him because his message was so simple and clear. It It had no dealings with how he presented the message. The simple fact is, is that people didn't want to hear the message. And so they resisted the message and their hearts hardened as a result. And sadly, this pattern of unbelief happens. You see it in Scripture. Remember Pharaoh, he heard the message of Moses and what did he do? He resisted and his heart hardened. Jesus says that he tells his parables to reveal the kingdom of God and to conceal the kingdom of God. In other words, to those who persevere, who are interested in the truth, the kingdom will be revealed through these parables. But if you're not really interested... You're going to hear the message, and you actually will grow in your hardness toward the message. That's a sober thought, isn't it? That God can harden someone's heart. That's why we should always take with great seriousness and attentiveness the Word of God when it impacts us. That we don't dismiss it and turn aside to it. And just so you guys know this, this passage, though it's a challenging passage, is very important in the New Testament. It's quoted five different times. As I said, it's used to explain Jesus' parables. In John 12, it's used to explain that Jesus performed these miracles, yet the Jewish people, by and large, were not believing in them. And because of the lack of faith, there was a hardness of heart that came about. So what's Isaiah going to make of this commission? In verses 11 to 13, it says... Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it, fell, when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So Isaiah says, How long am I going to have to preach 
And no one responds to this message. And the answer is, until all the judgments are carried out against Judah. Again, those covenant promises and warnings and judgments that God had implemented with Israel. If they continued to rebel, these things were going to take place. And there was going to be judgment. There was going to be exile. And so God is saying, look, you're going to keep preaching this message. They're not going to listen to you. And one day there's going to come judgment. But in the midst of this really hard news, did you catch the glimmer of hope? As we often, again, see in Isaiah, judgment and salvation mixed together. God promises that there's going to be a remnant after the exile and that this remnant is going to be the future of Israel. God is going to work in this remnant. Just as he has now worked with Isaiah, he is going to work with this remnant and God is going to do something new in the future. Next week, we're going to see what that means. might feel a little bit like Christmas in July. Because we're going to be talking about the famous passage with the virgin birth. Fascinating stuff. So let me close with two points of application. First, I want each of us to embrace the holiness of God. The holiness of God lies at the center of this passage. And this vision that Isaiah has just radically changed his life. And in the rest of the book of Isaiah, the holiness of God, in fact, that title, the Holy One of Israel, appears 26 times. Isaiah was entranced by this, and I want us to embrace the holiness of God. Now, again, I think that means that, we, that God is fully devoted uh, to who He is and what He does. He's devoted to His plans and His purposes. He's devoted to His covenant and His people. God is devoted to His own glory. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Sometimes people wonder, is it prideful for God to focus on Himself? You ever ask that question? It's a good question. I think the answer is no. Because it shows the difference between us and God. If we point to ourselves, listen to this, We are not pointing to what is infinitely glorious. Not so with God. God is devoted to the greatest good, the person of supreme worth in the entire universe, Himself. And He's pointing to the only person or thing that can satisfy His creation. Again, Himself. So church, it would be wrong, it would be unloving for God not to be devoted to Himself, right? It would be wrong and unloving for God to point to anybody else besides Himself. He would be allowing us to chase after something that is deficient. In fact, if God pointed to anything else of supreme worth besides Himself, He'd actually be committing idolatry, right? God is fully devoted to Himself, and He must do so since He is God. And practically speaking, in these difficult days, as we all recognize, church, we need a big view of God, don't we? We don't need to try to explain it away or try to get God off the hook, what He's up to. We need rather a huge view of God and we need to see Him as holy. We need to see that He is in control of the world. And God is carrying out these plans that He has for this day and for this age 
to bring himself glory. So let us embrace that God is holy. And then second, let's live devoted to God. Now on one hand, we are God's possession. He He devoted us to himself. You realize that? You're God's treasure. He devoted you to Himself. It says in 1 Peter 2.9, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So do you get that? We belong to Him. But on the other hand, because He devoted us to Himself, we are to live devoted to Him. We should have an internal devotion to God. And that is manifested by our lives. 1 Peter 4, 14-16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, as I said earlier, holiness does not mean the same thing as moral purity. Yes, we are to be morally pure, but holiness means devotion to God. And when we are devoted to God, then purity is the result of that devotion. So that we no longer want to let sin dominate our lives because we are so steadfast in our devotion to God. That we're not going to be encumbered by things of the world. So let me ask you as we close, where are you right now? If God was to reveal it to your heart and you were to be honest with yourself, are you devoted to God above all else? It's not enough just to have good intentions. God demands devotion. And I think that's where we run astray sometimes. Where we confuse an intention to be devoted to God The same thing as actually being devoted to God. We don't practically want to do this, but it's what takes place in our lives. And our lives sometimes are so filled with busyness and activities, electronics and so forth, that God and that devotion to Him get squeezed out instead of waking up and reaching for our Bible. We we grab our phone. Right? We pack our schedule so full that we're too busy to serve God or we buy so many things that we can't spend our money in a way that would honor God. Maybe we need to make some changes to pull the shade up a little bit in our hearts today so that we're devoted to the Lord the way we should be. To be devoted to His Word. To be devoted to prayer. To be devoted to serving the church. To be devoted to serving in the community but to to be resolved to live out this devotion and not let anything detract from that devotion and to have a willingness to be like Isaiah, to do the hard things, amen? That God says in His Word, that God puts on your heart by the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to do this. And sometimes we just hem and haw and drag our feet and say, I have a desire to. One day I'll get to it. But God wants us to be what? Devoted. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Church, do we want to be holy today? Let's be devoted to the one who is infinitely worthy. Let us pray.
Lord, your word says in 1 Samuel 2.2, there is no one holy like the Lord. And we agree. As a church today, we proclaim that, that there is no one like you. And Lord, only you can satisfy the desires of our heart. We thank you that you are holy. Holy, holy, holy. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live this out practically. That when we encounter you, that we would not be the same. And Lord, even in this moment now, as you might be speaking to our hearts, may we resolve to live the way you are calling us to live. To say, woe is me. I am undone. Speak to our hearts, we pray, God. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And Lord, we look forward to laying aside those things that hinder us and walk in greater freshness and joy so that we sense your presence and your joy in our lives in greater measure and greater degree. Thank you that you've met with us here this morning. Lord, thank you that your indwelling Holy Spirit goes with us so that we don't have to gather just once a week and be with you, Lord, but your presence goes with us. We pray that you'd be with us in a new and powerful way. We thank you for your precious word. Thank you for these things that we've heard today. May you water and grow them for your glory and honor. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.